In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Uh, we're going to start, start today, chapter 5, if you can speak. Uh, does anybody remember what happened last chapter? Okay. Uh, basically, last chapter, chapter 4, talks about St. John being taken up to heaven to see God's glory, and he described the throne, and we compared the throne to the church, or the throne in heaven to the church last time and compared also to the Old Testament and we looked at the four uh, heavenly creatures, the cherubim who carry the throne and we talked about them uh, extensively I think. Uh, today we're going to jump to chapter 5. It's a continuation of the same vision. Uh, we're sort of going to be on this vision until almost the end of the uh, book of Revelation and in this part, um, we're going to be start discovering the scroll, what it means, and the seals, and the seven seals. If you remember, we said last time that we're going to look right now at the seals, and then you know the seventh seal is going to be going to start another series, and then it, you know we're going to start another series, and so on. So why don't we just read the first few verses and start talking about them in more detail. Who's going to volunteer? And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to lose its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found whether to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to lose its seven And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Okay, this this is Okay, so anything uh, mysterious so far? Everything is clear. So what is this uh, scroll or the the book? Anybody knows? What's in this in the scroll? Yeah, what is it? That can be one interpretation. It's like future events or, you know, what's going to happen in the world. Parts of it is from the outside, which can be seen. You know what the scroll looks like? It's like, you know, basically a long piece of paper, you know, glued together, and then a scroll. So you can see things from the outside, and there are things inside that you cannot see. And to make sure that nobody can open this scroll, there are seven seals, and no one was allowed to open them. So that's the scroll. So there's different interpretation to the scroll. A lot of you know the fathers look at the scroll and look at it different ways. One of them is events that happened and will happen. That's so from the inside, you know, those are hidden events that we don't know yet. And from the outside, maybe you know, if we can peek from the outside, maybe these are the events that already took place. 
what's another interpretation that can be? Some of the fathers say that this can represent the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the New Testament is the one that's from the inside because that's what can get you to more spiritual depth. While the Old Testament on the outside because that's the shadows and the signs of things to come and happen in the New Testament. If you remember in Revelation 3, 5, in, uh, can we go back to Revelation 3, 5 and read that verse quickly? So, there's a mention here of a book of life. Some of the fathers also said that this might be the book of life and the names are hidden. We're not going to know them until the end of the world. And uh, some of it will be known because it's going to be on the outside. For example, we know that St. Mary's in heaven right now. We know St. Anthony will celebrate his feast tomorrow. Is, you know, really made it. But there are a lot more people to come and we don't know whether they're going to make it or not. Another interpretation that looks at this looks at it as the problem of salvation and if you think about it salvation what do we say in the Gregorian liturgy not an angel nor archangel nor a prophet you have entrusted them with our salvation because no one would be able to save us as humans no one can, not from heaven, not from earth, not from, you know, under the earth. No creature can actually redeem us and save us except Christ himself. So that can be another interpretation of that scroll or that book. In any case, it's something we don't know what it is, and we're not going to be told what it is until, you know, throughout this, you know, book. So when we go up to heaven, we'll find out. But as the seals open, we're going to discover events that happen throughout history or affect the church or things that are, you know, uh, happening simultaneously. And we're going to learn what these events were at a time. So if we look at the seven seals, sealed with seven seals, why, why would the Bible, for example, be sealed with seven seals? And why the only one worthy to open that would be Christ? Because if you look at the Old Testament, there's a lot of symbols in the Old Testament. Sacrifices, you know, offerings and prophets and people like Moses and people like uh, Jonah and all these prophets who represent Christ in different ways and all these things that represent Christ in different ways. Really you cannot understand all these symbols and all the facts in the Old Testament except through Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament becomes sealed until Christ opened the seal for us, until we get to know him by him revealing himself to us. Don't forget, the name of the book is Revelation, which means that Christ himself or God himself is letting us know more about him. It's not our, you know, studious effort going in and learning and trying to understand more about God, doing PhDs and master theses about who God is and, and all that that will get us to know God. It's only when God reveals himself to us that we're going to get to know him. Right? That's one interpretation. 
if it's the book of life, why seal seven seals? Because again, what that's happened that God comes and tells me, Murad, you're going to heaven. What I'm going to do? I'm going to go enjoy life. Stop struggling. Go enjoy life. Already, I already made it. So why worry? And besides, I'm going to be flying on clouds and having my wings up, right? And my, you know, my crown. I'm going to be saint on earth. Of course, I'm going to end up to be in hell afterwards, right? And if I started my life in a bad way, and I don't find my, you know, name in the book of life yet, I haven't believed in Christ, I haven't received, you know, I haven't been baptized, I received the Holy Spirit. If I, if that book is known, guess what's going to happen to me? Give up. We're never going to see St. Mary of Egypt. We're never going to see St. Moses the Black. And we're never going to see people repenting and starting a new life. Right? So that's maybe another reason why, if it is the book of life, why it's sealed with seven seals. If this is God's plan for the future, or, you know, uh, or the plan of salvation, only Christ can reveal it to us. And this, I think St. Ambrosius said that, uh, when you read the, the book by Abu Nathalus, he said that the nice thing about, you know, this seal with seven seals, is that shows us that no matter what kind of earthly knowledge we have, unless Christ reveals to us, we're not going to know anything about the Bible, we're not going to know anything about Him. So I go back to the same comment I made last week about studying theology. You can study theology as much as you want, as long as you true spiritual person. If you don't live a spiritual life and you study theology, you end up to be in, in big trouble. And the other problem is when we study the Bible without praying and without letting God reveal himself to us through the Bible, guess what? I'm going to have my own vision, my own interpretation, impose that on the Bible, come up with different things than what God intended or say that the Bible is wrong, People today are saying, oh, the flood never happened. They're just, you know, parables that Moses inserted there to teach people not to do sin. Things of that nature. All these things, because people are trying to impose their vision and not letting God reveal to them and open the seals on the Bible. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book? and to lose the seal, loose the seals thereof. So the angels, if we look at that, an angel, you know, is trying to find out who can, who's worthy to open the book. So angels, they already struggle, they already either won or lost. And they're already, they're going to be where they are. I mean, there's not, they're not going to be moving up or down spiritually. That's what the church teaches us. But he is still concerned, he is trying to find out somebody to help and solve this problem for all of us. Uh, I'm sorry, is, is there a scroll and a book of life, or is that there's just one scroll? And it's, it's a scroll, we don't know what it is. Alright. So right. we read the book of life? Uh, Chapter 3, verse 5. Okay. Some people say it is one and the same. Some people say that this scroll is the Bible. Some people say the scroll is the, the, the story of salvation. Right. And it can be all of them combined. Right. Again, these are heavenly events or heavenly things described in human terms. 
St. John described using his language in the first century, he did not have laptops, he did not have wireless communication, he did not have internet access or any of these things to be able to use, describe the event of the world using these terms. He had to describe them using his terms 2,000 years ago. And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. So the angels couldn't open the book. The angels were just trying to find somebody to, to open it. And the angel's job is, you know, as you know, the word angel is to announce or to declare God's will. So God wanted this book to be revealed, to be opened, but everything has to, you know, happen in due time. Heaven, no one worthy in heaven, so not an angel, nor an archangel. Earth, no human, no prophets, no righteous. Right? And under the earth, that's the devil. And uh, the devil does not know the future. That's another proof that we can use with those people who try to predict the future and so on. That, look, the devil doesn't know anything about the future and he's limited in his knowledge. Okay? So how can people pretend, you know, you go read your palms or do whatever and find the devil is telling you things that become fact. You go, somebody opens, you know, tarot cards, you know, or read your palm, or tell you these events are going to happen, or al-ahwa, flip it over, and you're going to find, you know, it tells you, oh, then at sick at suffer in two weeks, you're going to be going somewhere, you're going to be receiving a letter, or any of these things. How do these people do it? Whether knowingly or unknowingly, through the devil. How does the devil know these events are going to happen in the, the, in the future? The devil knows the past and he just manipulates the future. He, like, for, he doesn't know the future, but he just uses events in the past to pretend like... To, I, mean, to get people. I think there's more to it. The more you tell somebody something about to happen, the more they think about it, the more they make it happen. It's not so much that he uses events in the past to predict the future. He doesn't. That's not what I think at all. I think when a person, a psychic, tells you you're going to meet somebody wearing a blue shirt and red pants on this day, and they're going to look, they're going to have blonde, you know, and they describe them, whatever the case is, they describe them. You're going to look every which way to find a person that matches, and he'll make sure that person happens to walk in your path. Like you may, somehow, that's more of a thing than, you can't use the past to predict your future, it doesn't make sense. It's not, it's not like you got hit by a car tomorrow, you get hit by a car. And then it's not to predict it, it's to lead somebody on. So I, I think you're actually both right. I heard this from Abuna that they're both right. Like they can take no, like you can take a uh, if you know if that girl is emotional, and from her past they'll know she's emotional. So he'll play on her emotions. But I also and then also what you were saying, and then I also heard it was like um, like for example if you if you some the psyche tells you you're gonna get a raise in two weeks. It could be because the devil knows that the bosses were saying you're going to get a raise. So it's just like passing on the word. It's not like they actually know. So it is passing on the word. Don't forget the devil as a creature or as a group of creatures have been fighting humans for the last six, seven thousand years, billions of them. So they have a good database. Right. Most likely, this person with these characteristics is going to behave this way, so they can predict, right? They can influence your thinking, and the whole idea, the whole idea behind telling you 
near-term events that they have, you know, previous knowledge of. Then you said, you know, they saw or they heard your boss saying, I'm going to give you a raise, you know, next week or whatever. Uh, They can tell you that and then you start thinking, oh, this person or this path can tell me the future. So I can depend on this path and not depending on God. That's one level. But even we go, you know, look at it from a higher point of view. You know, I know none of us is going to go to, you know, a palm reader or whatever to tell them the future. And, you know, we're not going to believe them. Um, but from a, from a higher point of view, a lot of times when we have problems and trying to know, the, you know, what's going to happen, what's going to be my career, you know, who, who will, I, will I marry, who, you know, how are my kids are going to grow up, where I'm going to buy my house, where I'm going to live, you know, what's going to be my next job, all these things. I don't depend on God. I seek, you know, help from heaven, earth, or under the earth. Mm-hmm. Worst thing is, of course, under the earth. Right? But I seek help from other sources and don't focus on the only one who can really solve the problem, and that's Christ. And that's why here we're going to find that St. John is, you know, is crying. He was looking for somebody on, in heaven, on earth, under the earth, to solve the problem and open the seal. But he did not focus on the one person who can really open it. I mean, the book, the scroll was next to God, right? So why would he look for somebody else to open the scroll other than God? I look at that and I look at our problems. Each one of us. Chapter 5. I look at that and look at our problems. We, we a lot of times, seek solutions outside, from outside God. And guess what? We're never going to find anything. Because the only solution, the only right solution will come from God. So that's something we need to keep track of. Uh, 5.4 And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. I have a question. Sure. Sorry, I was just reading up to where you are. And uh, when the angel sang with a loud voice, who is worthy to open a scroll and to loose its seals? I feel like there's a problem with that question in one sense. So that may have led uh, John to think that way. When you're saying who is worthy to open the scrolls and to list the seals, to list the seals, who is worthy to ask God a question or to pose that question in front of God when He's the? It's like you don't ask that. It's like saying who is worthy to open the seals and to loose it, or to open open the scroll and to lose its seals. You wouldn't think He's posing that question to God because why do you question God? So John takes that perception and then thinks clearly he's not posing a question to God. It must be someone on heaven, on earth, or under. And then he realizes nobody can. And then he's thinking, why is the angel posing a question to God? He's not posing the question to God for but one reason. Hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. He's not posing the you know the angel is not posing the question to God. We just said that the angels only execute God's will and execute His commands. That's the meaning of an angel, messenger. Right. So. The question here, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting problem you're, you know, you're posing here. The angel is asking the question. So, St. John and us realize that there's no other one can solve that. Don't forget, St. John is coming from earth to heaven. He doesn't know how things run up there. Right? He's, he's still new. That's why he's the only one we're going to find out that he's the only one who cried in heaven. And a little bit later, next verse, we're going to find that one of the elders, one of the 24 priests, is going to come and tell him, why are you crying? 
So all the heavenly know what the solution is. They know what the answer is. So they pose a question to him only. They pose the question, general question. Let us think about it. When Abuna asks, where are your hearts? It's a general question. Yeah, yeah. Right? He's not going to come and look at your heart okay, during the liturgy. Saying, it's a general question that makes you think, where is my heart? Wait a minute, I'm standing in church, I'm praying to God, I might as well think about God and let my, my heart be to God. I would just wonder, why is this angel saying that? I mean, you're asking me and you're yeah. the answer. <laughs> you got it? Like, it just bothers me. No, it, doesn't, it shouldn't bother you. I Again, I understand exactly what you're saying, but on a, and if I was really there and the angel really said that, I would just say, are you kidding? Don't worry, if you're really there, you're going to be really scared. <laughs> you're not going to open you your mouth. Until we clean ourselves from all sins, we're going to be very scared if we go there. I know. I'm just saying. It's I'm not scary, no, I'm just joking. I would just wonder why. Yeah. Just a question on the perspective. St. John tells us these were visions he had, right? He yes. doesn't claim he was transported into heaven. Well, now let's go back and read in chapter 4. So these are not mere visions? No. Read 4, 1 and 2. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he, sat, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius. Okay, that's it. That's it. Right. So he was in the spirit... And he was. What does that mean? That he was in the spirit, and he, you know, he was in heaven. We don't know whether this is a physical transformation of the body into the heaven. We don't know whether it's only the spirit goes there. We don't know. But he, but he was there. It's not just a vision. No, he was there, and he was awake, and he was conscious, and he, you know, it's not just a dream. And the throne only exists in heaven. The throne is described as God's throne. But don't forget. When we reviewed last week, Isaiah and Ezekiel saw the throne, for example, on top of the, you know, in, in, the, in the altar of the you know, temple, and on top of the temple, and in heaven. So, God's throne can appear in different places, but it is in the heaven of heavens. So, how does, like for example, St. Paul says, I know a man in the body or outside the body, I do not know. He even doesn't know whether he was you know, when he was taken to the third heaven, he does not know whether he was in the body or outside the body. It's just a different state for him. He's never been in that state. Yes. He didn't know. Right. And St. Paul was very used to visions. And if you go back and look at the Acts of the Apostles and look at all the letters of St. Paul, he saw like 10, 12 different visions. Okay. So Bible study? Bible study. Welcome. I'm going to have to fist thing. What? Okay. Can uh, can somebody give him Bible? Can I ask you a question? Sure. For the part where it says he was, uh, with what Mark was asking about asking the question who is worthy of the scroll, can't you kind of take it as like it's a praise? You know how like if they, I'm just thinking back, like if they were to, if someone's praising someone, they're like, oh, who can. 
I know, like, build this house except he has here. You know, like, can you take it that way? As like, who can do this? I don't know the answer. Yes. But you ask it more as in to get the answer as a praise. That, yes, that, that's it. And also, I said, only St. John was the one who's not from heaven. And he's the only one who did not know what it is that's uh, that's happening. And that's why he was crying. And we're going to find out in verse 4 that he was crying. Because no one was in heaven or on earth or, you know, was worthy to read the book. Okay. So, in chapter 4, when you're saying that St. John, um, yeah, that verse that we read in chapter 4, mm-hmm. does that mean from this point on he was yes. in heaven? Yes, he, he was in yes. By the way, this is the second time, and this is a different level. If you go to uh, Revelation chapter 1, he said, I was in the Spirit. And then he saw the first vision which happened here on earth. Christ appeared to him here on earth. The second vision, it's a higher level that he. You know, ended up to be in heaven. Okay. And not ask me how that happened. It hasn't happened to me yet, so. <laughs> Hopefully, it happened to you guys first. <laughs> okay. All right. So, if you really, you know, one, why do you think Saint John was crying? It's just, you know, he was crying just because he didn't find anybody to open the book. Not just him that's not worthy. Nobody else in heaven is worthy. I mean, if you think about it, there's a lot of... Anybody who can, you know, sit down and think a little bit, you find a lot of problems that faces humans, and there's really no answer for them. You know, and that's why philosophers come up with all these ideas and they uh, meditate on these issues, and they don't know how to answer these questions. Like, why Why are we here? Why, why sin? Why evil? Why all these problems? What... It, how, how can I live a better life? How can I change what's inside me? Uh, we know that St. Paul you know, mentioned in Romans 7 and 8 that the struggle that goes inside each one of us between being good and doing evil. And this struggle is not just unique to Christians, it's to everyone. We're more conscious of it because we're trying to improve ourselves and we have the Holy Spirit enlightening us with what's happening inside it. But anybody else doesn't have, you know, the Holy Spirit and God's grace, they're struggling really hard and they, they don't know what the answer to this. And they look at it, at the end, it's a miserable life. So why, why, why am I here? Right? So unless, again, Christ opens these seals for you, Christ is the one who reveals himself to you and lets you know these things. Again, no one comes to me except through the Holy Spirit, right? Only when the Holy Spirit works in us and we come to Christ and then Christ reveals Himself to us, we're not going to be crying. And that's why we find this, the, the martyrs and the saints who suffered through persecution, through hard times, they were joyous, jo- joyful all the time, right? So that's something else to keep in mind that, you know, when we look at our problems, we can spend a lot of time crying, crying, if we look at Christ and focus on Christ, all these problems are going to be solved. How? We don't know. Okay. okay. Uh, verse 5, 
And one of the elders, Revelation chapter uh, 5, verse 5. And one of the elders says unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to lose seven seals thereof. The elder, this is one of the 24 priests who have thrown um, Christ. So that also shows the love and the compassion of the heavenly toward the earthly. St. John is a stranger in heaven, first time there. And one of those elders, one of those priests, leave his throne, comes to him and talk to him and tell him, why are you crying? You're in heaven. Look at the source of your, you know, of your comfort. Look at the source of you know solving your problem. And he pointed him to who? Jesus. Jesus. And now the description of Jesus is what? The lion that comes out of the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah. Let's go to Genesis 49. Verses 9 to 12. Can somebody read for us? 49. Guess what that chapter is. The last two chapters of Genesis. Can somebody guess? Yes. This is when Jacob was dying and he was giving blessings to his children. From nine. Yeah, you can read from eight, that's fine. Judah, you are he whom your brother shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. One more. Finding Two his more. donkey to the vine, and his donkey's coat to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Okay. So I guess this is one of the prophecies again about Jesus and him being coming, you know, coming out of the tribe of Judah, him the lion coming out of Judah, and revelation that ties Genesis. As you can see, the first and last book completing each other and commending on each other. Yes? I'm confused because it says in the first verse of chapter 5 that the one sitting on the throne Mm -hmm. and has him in capital um, has the scroll in his right hand. Yes. So is that... Next to him, on his right, at his right hand. uh, At his right hand. That's a very good point because it's going to become more confusing when we oh come down <laughs> verse 7. Read verse 7. We might as well get confused once and for all. So who is he and who is him? You are the Father and the Son. Is that what it is? Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Does did anyone see the father? No. No. Go back to John one nineteen. Oh. I think I memorized that verse really well. Right. The things you have seen. No. Oh, 
letter of uh, the Gospel of St. John, chapter 1, verse 18. Can you read loud, please? No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Okay. So, and we go to Daniel. If you go to Daniel, chapter 7, verses, I think, let me find this one, because... Yeah, verse 13. Daniel 7, verse 13. Yes, please. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages shall serve him. Should serve him. His okay. dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. All right, so how are we going to re- reconcile again the reference between that the Lamb went and took the scroll from him, as well as what's being said in Daniel that they brought him near, which is actually, if you look at the original word, it's you know, Korban, you know offered him you know, as a korban. So how are we going to reconcile these two together? Well, one thing I feel just from reading this, it could be totally wrong. In the beginning when he says, immediately I was in spirit, and behold, the throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he only said one, so he couldn't describe him. He may have, he, so from his glory, didn't let him to even look enough to be able to perceive and see who it was. He just said one. Uh-huh. So then later, and he's looking, and he sees, he saw in the right hand of him. So maybe he saw what seemed to have been the right, the right hand could symbolize the power mm-hmm. or something it does. different. It does. And then, which we said it does, but in this situation specifically, I don't know. And then, so in this, saw, I'm sorry, in this particular situation, I skipped that part. In this particular situation, the right hand represents importance yes, yes. and strength, and you know, place of care. So, you put something in your right hand, you want to work on it quickly, and you know, you're going to execute it quickly. It's you know, under your hand that you're going to work with quickly. So, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. You're interrupting me. <laughs> and then, um, I don't. I have to think a little bit more in my head as to why. All right. <laughs> let's 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 be careful here because again, uh, when I went through the different books, there was no clear explanation and linkage between these you know these events. Uh, so let me just give you my own personal opinion, mm-hmm. and you can take it. Or leave it. No, right. uh, the incarnate Christ, Christ who became a man, mm-hmm. right, and went up to heaven. He went to heaven as a man, right? He did not lose his body when he went up to heaven. Mm-hmm. So this is the you know the person, or this is the the God who took the scroll and opened it. This is the same one who were brought closer. Does that mean that the, the, it's separation between the the Son and Jesus Christ? No. Again, this is an explanation for us to be able to understand 
the role of Christ when he was incarnated and he came and he took a body and then he took this body and went up to heaven. He's going to stay with that body. The the first verse in chapter four, when you know, I when you know, when Saint John saw the throne and the one that sat on the throne and he couldn't describe it, he that's because God's glory is undescribable. Right? So God the Father, or just God, or God as a whole. Period. Okay. Yes, and mo- as again we go back to John one eighteen, is that no one has seen the Father except the Son. Right? All God's vision, all the vision of God in the Old Testament, where. By the Son, only the Son, him, you know, he, he's the one who came, and he's the one Abraham saw. He's the one who's, you know, Gideon saw. He's the one who's, you know, Samson's father saw. He's all these things, right? So until he came and he took a body and came to earth with that body, and then he became that person, and then went up to heaven with that body. He offered himself as a sacrifice. So now he has a new role as the head of the church. And that's what we talked about in the beginning of chapter 1. If you go back to chapter 1, and we talked about him receiving from the Father, and Christ being sort of in between us and the Father. That's his role as an intercessor. In the sense that he interceded on us, you know, and re, you know, redeemed us from our sins. So now, this you know state of Christ as an incarnate Christ is quote unquote new and plays a new role in our salvation played the the key role the only role in our salvation so does that make any sense yeah and, and in a way I understand did I confuse you that. enough uh, I want to can I add something to that <laughs> we can relate this to how they always taught us that when you have you know Jesus he is the word of God the logos of God now when you have a thought in your head and you put it down on paper the thought never left your head but now it's on paper excellent so in the same way you can say that God is still one, he's still it in is. but now it's on paper as well as being one. So then when it's, so if it is God the Father on the throne, and then the Son who now has the glorified body, he is the one who comes and take it from him who is still God the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but now he has a glorified body and he's approaching it. Yes. Is that right or wrong? That's, okay. that's, that's the same, again that's, yeah. I did not treat that in any, any of the references yeah, I'm using. But exactly. So you can take that with a grain of salt and, you know... Throw it away if you want. Throw it away if you want. Okay? So, but again, uh, this 7.13 is also very difficult to understand. Daniel 7.13. Because it also talks about... uh, First talks about... uh, In 7 and 9 talks about God setting up the thrones and then, you know bringing him closer and a lot of the interpretations say oh they brought him closer to the father to the father Arrabub when they say Qarrabuhu to the ancient of the days and they you know they say that oh he was offered as a sacrifice to the father but in reality when you read it carefully it needs more more explanation so once we you know Find someone we can ask him. Why couldn't the prophet speak in plain language? <laughs> Something that's indescribable. A lot of it, a lot of it's wording. Uh, this is what Kamara taught us in the beginning. A lot of it, he says, God told me to write this, and you write something specific and clear in, in Revelation specifically. Some are just specific, clear, just like the writing to the churches in the first few chapters. 
but then the rest of it is something where he sees it and he's trying to put it in words that is just a way with his human word to describe something that's indescribable. So he can't put it in clear terms, there's no word to describe it. You get it? Could it be a combination of 60 words, but there's no word in English to put it together? It's too awesome. Like awesome, amazing, extraordinary. You know, all these words together, you can't fit it. If it's a message from God. It's not meant to be understood. Tell him that verse in the beginning. Well, forgot it. Yeah. It's, it's meant to be, what is it? Memorized. Yeah. Blessed are those who keep. Keep. Uh, and know the. the no, not. Let me, let me get it in. So I don't. Blessed is he who reads. Those who, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. It doesn't say understand anything. It doesn't I think that's right? too complicated, at yes. least for that time, to put it in the prophecy. Not, not even at that time, it's even complicated until now. Who, who can understand God? Alright, we can talk about God as much as we want. Do we really know Him? When we say he's infinite, what does infinite mean? When you and I describe something, we have to give it boundaries because this is what our mind can understand. Can we understand something without boundary? And the word infinite itself is a word that is not even doesn't make sense. You're saying a word which describes something which is indescribable. Infinity is indescribable. Yet you just put a word to describe the indescribable. When we, for example, here's another meditation for the fathers. They say that. All the heavenly creatures knew that God is love. Right? If you're with God from, you know, when you're created and you're in heaven, seeing God, you know that God is love. But they learned what really God is love means when he was incarnated, took a body, was born in a manger, died on the cross, and glori- you know was glorified later on. So that, to them, revealed a brand new dimension of what God is love is. So you and I will spend eternity trying to understand what God is and who God is. What are His attributes? And we're going to talk about some of these things you know, later on. But we will never be able to understand it. We have infinity, so we have plenty of time to understand it. But our job from today is beginning to meditate in who God is. What are His attributes? As much as I can know. And I pray to him, and he's going to fill me, and he's going to reveal to me himself. A little bit by little bit, I get to know who the God I'm, you know, I'm worshiping is. Who the God, you know, who loves me more than I love him, who that, you know, God really is. And as I grow in that love, and I I grow in that knowledge, he will take me, and he will reveal himself to me. And then there's another aspect to this also. Any prophecy, you taught us this, any prophecy in the Old Testament, even when Isaiah was writing... I think a virgin shall conceive and give birth. He has no idea how that's going to happen. He's just writing it. But when it happens, we understand the prophecy because we see it fulfilled. And God forbid we live to see these days. But once you see it, you're going to understand the animals with the ten heads. It may not be an animal with ten heads, but it's going to be that coming true. And in that day, you'll see the prophecy and you'll understand it. The same as he didn't, but he, and he didn't, except when he was in heaven looking at us. So let, let's try to move because the plan was to finish chapter five today. This was supposed to be the easy chapter. Yeah. yeah. So one of the elders again that shows the care of the heavenly toward us.
So again, when we talk about intercession, here the elder or the priest in heaven did not do any redemptive act. He saw somebody in trouble and he went to help him. So when we talk about intercession and intercession of the saints, this is what they do. They see that they're in trouble, they come and tell us, and they, they do their job. They point us to Christ. In our concept of intercession, the saints don't attract attention to them. They're not trying to attract attention to them. They point you to, you go to them and they point you back to, to Christ. And you go to Christ and tell you what? Go into, you know, like for example, what happened with Job. When the three friends were telling him, you're so bad, you're so bad, you're so bad, you're so bad, because, you know, God wouldn't do that to anybody except that he has committed adultery and he, he, he robbed the orphans and he did all these things. You must be that awful person. And that's why God's punishing you that way. And at the end, when God appeared to them, you know what he told them? I mean, God appeared to them and he's talking to them. Go ask Job to pray for, on your behalf so I can forgive your sins. Oh my God, you're talking to them directly. Why not just tell them, you know, you know, repent and I'll forgive your sins. Why do you ask them to go to Job and let Job pray to you, all right, and point them to you and then they repent? Or, they, you know, God forgives their sins. Because again, that's, you know, like a father who loves his children and you want to ask him something... Well, go go through my son. I want you know. I feel proud of my son. I want him to let him you know be part of this process. Go let you know use my son as an you know as an you know intercessor. He comes and asks me, do it. I was just gonna add one. I could be totally wrong, but it could also be to go and make sure that when they go up to him and they say that to him, it's gonna reconcile with him. He may not. He may be mad at them, and then he'll forgive them that way because the sin is held against them till they're forgiven. No, doesn't make sense. Well, it can be, but this was not, you know, this is not what, again, what's, what's being, it can be a nice meditation, but this is, you know, again, what what's not in the books, so, and go with the books. <laughs> All right, um, so why is Christ, you know, described as a lion? Because of his strength, because of him, you know, overcoming evil with the power and don't forget when we talked about the four creatures uh, and we said that the lion represents when we talked about them describing the salvation and each of them taking another aspect of salvation we said the lion represents the resurrection the power of the resurrection and you know overcoming evil and so on so now you know why Aslan is the lion that you know represents Christ in the chronicles of Narnia <laughs> Yeah, right. Uh, so I'm not trying to sell tickets here to the movie. <laughs> not the Lion King. No. Uh, okay, but at the same time, the devil, you know, Saint Peter describes the devil as a lion going around seeking to devour, you know, uh, anyone. Here, you know, there's a difference. Christ is described as a lion. The devil, you know, is not be is not given the name lion like Christ. No, he's as a lion. He's pretending to be a lion. He's not truly a lion. He's pretending to be a lion because of his fero- you know, he's ferocious. He's you know wants to just devour people and destroy them. Not a true lion. If you notice and you know, go back and look at uh, Animal Planet and all these things, you find that the lion, when he's, when he's content and doesn't want to eat, 
That's fine. When uh, the lion is content and doesn't want to eat, he can roam freely among the animals and no one is disturbed and they, they don't do anything. So that's a true lion. Like if somebody who's devouring people all the time, devouring all the time, that's not a true king. The tribe of Judah, again, we just saw right now Christ coming from the tribe of Judah and Jacob prophesied that thousands of years before Christ coming. Root of David. Uh, Christ is root of, Dave, root of David uh, because he is his creator. Right? Because again, in, go back in Matthew 22:41. If we go back to Matthew 22, remember that puzzle that Christ quizzed the Pharisees with? You read it quickly. While the Pharisees were gathered, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think? of Christ. Whose son is he? They say to him, David's. He said to them, how then, da- how then does David by the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool for your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from the day to question him anymore. So, Christ used that, you know, problem to make the Pharisees think about him and about his role. He is the creator of David. He is the root of David. At the same time, he is David's son. And we're going to find in Revelation 22:16 that you know Jesus said, "I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify these things to you over the churches. I am the root of an offspring of David, the bright and morning star." And there's also a prophecy about that in the Isaiah 11. says, And a shoot goes out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Okay. And a shoot goes out from the, trump, the stump uh, of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. That's Isaiah 11. 1. So he's describing St. Mary, and then God coming out because the, the shoot coming out is something that actually came out of it and then him coming no he's describing Christ okay going. can we see the verse 11 1 Isaiah 11 1 okay. so you can go on I just want to read it it's okay alright I'll go on again Christ has prevailed through Christ, through the cross, Jesus Christ has overcome the devil and he is victorious. Verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6, And behold, and lo, in the midst of the throne and for the, of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood the Lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into the old earth. Wait a minute. What did the elder say? Look at who. Did the elder, back in the previous uh, verse, verse 5, he said, look at who? In verse 5. He said, look at the lion, right? Lion coming out of the tribe of Judah. And when St. John turned around and looked, what did he see? I said that was just a description, though. 
What do you mean? I thought it was just like, a, like an adjective, not like he really was a lion. Oh. No, he didn't. He, yeah, he saw a lamb. He did not see a lion. He saw a lamb. So how can we reconcile between these two? Where is it? But I mean, I thought like <laughs> he was a lamb. Yeah. The lamb is sacrificed. Uh, sacrificed for Christ. Uh, the lion is uh, represents the victorious nature of Christ over death. So, uh, is he a lion or is he a, is he a lamb? Well, in the sense, he's a lamb in the sense that he's sacrificed for the sin of all the people, to correct all the sins of all these people who sin. And he's a lamb in the sense that he's victorious uh, over death. So there's no one description that can really satisfy, you know, God and satisfy his act of redemption. And as we saw in, you know, chapters 2 and 3, for every church, Christ appeared in different way, in different form, depending on their need and their, you know, uh, their state they're in. Same thing, here Christ is appearing as a lion, as a lamb, depending on how you see him. For example, if I'm under sin and I'm, you know, uh, feeling overwhelmed by sin, Christ will appear to me as a lion because he can, he is the victorious one and he can save me and free me from the sin. Right? Uh, If guilt and so on are overwhelming me his vision or his image as a slain lamb will remind me that he's the one who took away my sins and that will comfort me so Christ will appear to us in many different ways because nothing can describe God not even 99 descriptions yeah anyway because we can't put a limit on God by describing him by so many descriptions he's, he's unlimited alright stood the lamb, again stood means that he is standing on his own that's also a sign of resurrection slain again, as he appeared to the disciples and uh, St. Thomas after the resurrection he carried this, the wounds of the cross and he's the only one who's going to have wounds in heaven. He's the only body that's going to have wounds. Any of us who are hurt here or, you know, lose, you know, part of our body or whatever, or don't like the way we look, we're going to look great and perfect in heaven. Because we're going to be on his image. Right? As St. John describes, we don't know how we're going to look like, but whatever he's going to look like, we're going to look like him. Okay? So, we're going to have a perfect image, except... Christ, who's always going to maintain this, the wounds in his body to remind us of the act of salvation that he performed for us. So we can glorify him always for that and remember that. That's why the church always, always have a cross everywhere in the church. There's a cross because that's how we, you know, we know God's love to us and that's why we keep it always you know, in our lives. Seven horns. Here, uh, a lamb with seven horns stands for the full strength. Again, a horn is a sign of strength. The stronger you are, the stronger your horn is, you know, as an animal. And uh, again, Saint, you know, David the prophet said, "What the, ho- the Lord is my horn, and my salvation is the horn of my salvation." Seven eyes is for complete knowledge, and this wisdom that we get through the Holy Spirit. And He's saying here. 
having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into the earth. So the eyes are the seven spirits of God which sent through our knowledge, our understanding, we will get via the Holy Spirit. So again, let's not go and try to seek knowledge and understanding in any other way other than by Christ and by the Holy Spirit, by praying and fasting and putting ourselves under God's mercy. We study and we do our effort and we do books and do everything, but again, put them all under God and let God shape the knowledge we get, or else we're going to be like all those people who have different theories about the Bible, that none of them is true. The nice verse, and he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And this is the incarnation, Christ the incarnate, you know, Son of God who came in and in his role as an intercessor for us, he comes in. Alright, verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Again, and you come to our church, look at Revelation, it's one and the same. Abuna is always carrying a shoria, going around with incense, raiding incense throughout, you know, uh, the vespers and throughout the liturgy. Reminds, you know, and actually when he goes uh, in the circuit outside, uh, during raising the incense and during the, you know, the Poland epistle, for example, and all that, he is collecting our prayers. So when Abuna is going around with, you know, Bukhur, you're supposed to be praying, asking God for forgiveness, and praying to God at that time. And Abuna collects these prayers and goes in inside the altar and offers them to God. Okay. Everything we do in the church, straight from the Bible. Okay. And as you can see here as well, the, the, even the four beasts and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. So we worship God this is nothing strange from the Bible. It is biblical, very biblical. Matanyat and giving you know worship to God is all biblical here. And they sang a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou was slain and has redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kind and tongue, and people, and nation. They sang a new song. What does it mean, sang a new song? When is the first time we heard about the song in the Bible? When is the first mention of a song in the Bible? When did people start singing to God? Quiz. Jesus in Jerusalem? No. In the whole Bible. No, before that. The first, uh, I'll save you time because you don't. Exodus 15. And Moses sang a new song with his people, right? After he saved them? Or after they were saved? After they were saved. Yes, after he saved them because Moses, he represents Christ. But they sang a new song. 
and this is the, sing- the song we sing in Tazbihah mm-hmm. every night. You know? So what, what does it mean, a new song? It's a new time, or a new time, something different, different age. Different age? Or do I praise God differently when I realize something different about Him? God doesn't change. God is eternal. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But when I, disco- when I discover or experience one of His new attributes, I will praise Him in new song. Because now, for example, I didn't know that God can do you know, math. He helped me in my quiz, for example. And I praise God for his, you know, mathematical abilities. Mm-hmm. But I praise God for him being in, you know, Pantocrator, he's in control of everything. I praise God for, you know, his love to us. I praise God for him being merciful. I praise God, you know, when I meditate more and more on the incarnation, I praise God for his humility and for him taking a man, you know, taking the shape of a man. I'll say, you know, praise God. Every time I realize something new about God, I'll have a new song. We are used to the song books and we think this is the only way we're supposed to sing to God is through the song books that we, we have. Ten, we have ten songs or twenty songs. We've sang three or four of them for the last twenty years and that's it. <laughs> to us, this is singing a new song. And that's not really it. Singing a new song is truly knowing something new about God. So every day, try to open your eyes and try to see a new attribute for God on that day. See what God is doing. Some, you know, and you're gonna realize every new, every day, something new about God. Not because He's He's different or He has done anything different to you. No, because you're gonna. When God opens your eyes to Him, you realize a lot of new things about Him. As we said, we have an eternity until we can learn everything about God. So every day, we have the potential of knowing a new song. God does something wonderful with me. You know, whether it gets me a job or, you know, fixes my car or any of these things. By the way, God also helps with the little stuff. He can help you find a parking spot and He can help you, you know, find a house. He can help you with everything. I'm, uh, I'm Is it just for that? <laughs> I'll tell you after. <laughs> anyway, so think about the new song. And, and notice something else. Were the heavenly saved? Again, thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and has redeemed us. Wait a minute. There's something wrong here. The heavenly were not redeemed, right? They're saying our words to him. Something else from the liturgy. That explains this. Something from the liturgy. You made the heavenly and the earth into one, right? When Christ became a man, and then he, as a man he went up to heaven, now he united the heavenly with the earthly, right? So they are participating in th- you know, thanking God and praising God for his redemption of us. And that's why the church uses the intercession all the time because the church knows that the heavenly and the earthly now became one. They're praising for, uh, on our behalf. So even if not 
our eyes are not open to praise God, they are praising for Him on our behalf. Let me tell you something on the side. One time I was, you know, was talking with a Catholic priest, uh, and he was telling me that first Christ was, you know, was crucified because the the main purpose is that Jews were evil, not because of the incarnation. And uh, he was he did not come, you know, to be crucified, but they you know, crucified him because of that. And even if there was no other reason, even there was no other reason for Christ to be incarnated, the main reason was to praise God. Because no one can praise God rightfully except God Himself. So Christ had to be incarnated even just to praise God. And to be honest, that idea sounded, yeah, I mean, who can praise God, give Him all due praise? You know, no one can do that, right? No. Heaven, the. So why do you think he considered just praise Himself all eternity? He is praised by Himself. He does not need an external praise. I understand. Okay? God does not need an external praise. He is praised. He does not need the praise. So there was no need for him to be incarnate to praise himself. And again, there's a lot of look-nice ideas that are spreading from the West, right? and they're invading the church from different directions, and people can believe that and can accept that. Because again, it sounds logical. It can, it can sound logical. If I don't know my faith well, and somebody comes and tells me, you know, this theory has no meaning and has no basis, why not? Right? So we have to be careful about a lot of these new ideas that we hear from the outside. Anyway, and has redeemed us to God by blood out of every kind. If you look at the word redeem in the Strong's Dictionary, basically it means to purchase, properly to go to market, that is by implication to purchase, specifically to redeem or buy. So what did Christ buy us from? Who did he buy us from? Did God pay? This is, by the way, this is the whole big controversy. A lot of opinions about that. So I'm just going to give you briefly the the quick uh, the, the the two minute version, not the ten hour. He took us as his slaves, so he just took us back. But, not so but did he pay? No, did no, he, he pay to them? Him. No, but then that, the meaning of the word redeem is not a word to define it properly. To redeem means to get what's yours. Oh, because okay, wait, hold on. You know when they go, you redeem a coupon you have. You have a coupon that says this is a voucher for ShopRite worth $5. When you go redeem it, it's like ShopRite has the $5, but it's yours. You're just going to get it. It's not to say, and you, it's not ShopRite, it's yours. But you're going to redeem it there because they have. But what is the idea of purchase? He purchases with his blood. That kind of definition seems to make sense because, you know, the whole idea was God created Humanity is supposed to be, you know, in His will, and you know, and they send a sin that no one, no human being on his own can, you know, can pay the price on his own except. Uh, pay the price. Again, we're going back and say, well, right, saying the know, same thing. Pay the price. So, who's the price being paid for? Or two? Can is it paid to the God? Because Paid God, to God, okay. Because God is the one who made the command, so it's not like once we broke the commandment that okay. we, like we were given over to, we, like our punishment was death. So the wager, be careful, I mean, uh, I mean, you're close. Roman, in Romans 6.23, it says what? The wager of sin is death. So there's a wager for the sin. Right. Somebody has to pay that wager. And where does the death belong? Death is with the devil. But the wager is... No. No, no, death is God's commandment. Mm-hmm. 
Because we separated us from God, separated ourselves from God, that's death. I know, I know, but where does that lie? Where does that stay? Where does that go into darkness, which is with the devil? But the, the price is not paid to the devil. I know it's not paid to him. No, I know. Yeah. Okay. It's. The one we gave was the light. Yeah. No, it's not paid to him. He suffered from this. He lost people. I think, yeah. So, you correct the wrong by paying, you know, you don't always have to. It's a bad expression. You don't always have to. It's not, I mean, that's. I mean, you can correct a wrong by doing a work. You correct something that went wrong. You don't have to necessarily pay for someone else. There's a better example. I mean, your car gets repossessed. Okay, it was your car. But someone took it. You need to go pay a price to get your car back. Yes, but so you're going to pay. Father, okay, God being God. Okay, we, we're His. But then somebody kind of took it in. Okay, so He needed to go pay a price for the God the Father to bring it back. The price was paid to take back what is his to the father. The price is not paid to him, and the, well, no, it's still wrong, because the money's not going to the <laughs> Sorry, That's time. the idea. No, but see, that's the idea. That's why, that's why, that's why, that's why it's... See, it's not a transaction. That's, it's a bad example. No, it's not a bad... See, the, 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 it's, the reason... It's not monetary. Hold on. The reason God used that expression, because it has a meaning, it has a, it has a purpose, right? A lot of us, have, you know, again, try to say, to make that as the purchase in the sense that we understand, as again, price be paid for somebody, and if the devil is the one who's, you know, who holds us, then the price was paid to the devil. That's not really true. Okay? It's not a bad I mean, it's, as much as it's a biblical expression, so no, I cannot say... No, no, it's as much as... <laughs> 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 it's a question. Exactly. So it's just, it makes sense to us. Because, exactly. It so makes sense to us because, again, wager of sin is death. Somebody had to die, so this penalty is removed. Right? And somebody, the, this penalty or this price is paid for the father. If you just remove because, money, again, let me just finish. There's a lot of ideas, and unfortunately some of these ideas in our church, in the Coptic church, it says that, for example, that... Uh, the price was not paid for the father. There's nothing called, you know, pay the price. And, uh, you know, the father and, this, you know, this whole issue about who, how did, you know, why did Christ uh, die, why did, you know, suffer on the cross? Was that because God's love, was that, you know, they're, you know, paying the sin and the punishment? There's a lot of these problems going on and there's a lot of discussion about it. So I just, you know, wanted to clarify some of these things on a high level. There's no he money. Up to, there's, no, no, there's no transaction of anything. He went to him, he took what is ours, that, that what is his, that's it. And he paid, no if, you, if you think about it, as you know, paid the price, he paid the, you know, the price of our sin to the Father by him renewing us. All right? Okay. So, another point to think about. The heavenly are always praising God for his act of redemption. Are we praising God always? That's number one. Second, are we praising God for His redemption? Or always when we stand up and pray, you know, we pray for, you know, ask God for the poor, sick, and, you know, people in the hospital, and, you know, the standard. So, we should pray, we should praise God, and we should also praise Him for the salvation, and for, you know, that He saved us. And that's the heavenly, what the heavenly are praising Him for. And again, from every nation, kind, tongue, people.
So salvation is for everyone. And not just limited to select few like the cops or whatever. You're not going to be alone in heaven. You know, when you go there, not only the cops are going to be in heaven. There's going to be a lot of more people than that. And has made us unto our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on on the earth. Made us unto our God. Here our God stands for the personal relationship between those who are praying and God. He is their God. We're going to look later on when we see, for example, the problems that happen on earth and the disasters and so on. Say the God of heaven. I don't have a personal relationship to God, but they said the God of heaven. So they separate themselves from God. We're almost done. Anyway. Oh, no. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Again, kings and priests. We talked about you know being kings and priests and all that. We said this is not in the literal sense, but in the spiritual sense that we're all ruling of our sins and we offer ourselves as sacrifices to God. And we went there. You know, through chapter one in detail, what are the different kinds of praises, the sacrifice, priesthood? How can we offer ourselves? You know, different kind of offering to God, uh, and how to rule over our bodies. Verse eleven, and I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands. So basically, science say they're innumerable, so many. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. Received seven things. Again, which means that he received everything, you know, from the Father because of, you know, the on our behalf. So, again, power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessings. And if you go to the book of Abunatadros, on this chapter, he goes by everyone and says, what does, you know, power mean? You know, praise God for Christ received the power. Uh, What does it mean? Glory and riches and, and so on. Nice meditations there. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said Amen and the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that lives forever and ever. Now, I have a quick question for you guys. They said here that you know, every creature in heaven, we understand that it's all heavenly praise God. And on earth, you know, a lot of people praise God on earth. But how about under the earth? You know, the under the earth represents the devil. You know, not because they live under there, but because they fell below humans. Right? So how come the, the devils also praise God? At the end, definitely that's going to happen. They're going to realize, like, you know, give me an example from the Bible. Yes. And Lazarus, and rich man, and he was in heaven, 
He knew what's right and what's wrong, right? So, St. James also says what? Do you know God? Very good, even hmm? the devil knows God. Exactly. And he trembles. So the devil knows God, and the devil trembles from knowing God. So, they know God, and they know how mighty he is. But they can say that God is mighty and powerful, and that's not praise. They're just describing his attribute. Different than when we say that, when we praise God, that he's powerful and mighty, we praise him out of love and out of prayer. So not everyone who says, you know, God's name is saying it in praise and prayer. All right, so we accomplished the goal of finishing chapter 5. This is the most we have accomplished in, in one week. Any questions? Okay, glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.